How many of you have heard the phrase, there's no such thing as a dumb question? Have you all heard that? Now, how many of you have been around long enough to actually wonder if that's a true statement or not? But I, I don't know about you, but I know that in my time of 11 years in the military, five years in college, and nine years on social media on the Internet, I can say that I'm almost certain I've heard a dumb question or two in my life. I'm not sure that that statement is accurate at all. Statements like that are, are meant to be encouraging, and in some ways they are. But often they give a false sense of confidence. Right? Another statement along these lines I want to ask you if it's true or not, is it's never a waste of time to pray. Has anyone ever heard a statement along those lines before? Is that a true statement? Let me ask you, what if it's not true? What if praying can be a waste of time? Now, while that may sound borderline heretical, I'm actually about to make it worse before I make it better. Because I'm not thinking of people who worship false gods. I'm not talking about people who reject Jesus and then ask God to bless them. I'm actually talking about believers. What if something could happen that would render a believer's prayer life useless? What would be the cause of such idle prayers? What would be the cure if we've, got, if we've letting this sort of idleness come into our life? It's what we're going to talk about tonight. Open your Bible to Ezekiel 14. We're going to look at the first eight verses tonight. It's on page 634 if you have a pew Bible. And I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word once you find that. Ezekiel 14. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the Word of the Lord came to me, saying... Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Everybody of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols that I may seize the house of Israel by their hearts, because they are estranged from me by their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, and turn from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who separates himself from me, and sets up idols in his heart, and sets before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to the prophet to inquire of him, Concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb. I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. The title of the message tonight is The Cause and Cure of Idle Prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we've gathered tonight in your name. Uh, Lord, to study your word. Guide us tonight that we could take this into our hearts and that we could learn from it. 
Father, we want to have a powerful prayer life. We want our prayer life to draw us closer to you, to strengthen our hearts, encourage our spirits. So, Lord, if there's anything in our lives that hinders us, that that would cause us to have idle prayers, then, Lord, to not reveal it to us. Let your spirit be at work through the word and through our time together, Lord, that he would reveal it, reveal us, reveal to us the things that are wrong, that we would turn to you in repentance, Lord, that we would confess them and forsake them. And that, Lord, we could go out renewed in our relationship with you and our desire to serve you. Fill this place tonight with your spirit and your glory. Work in our hearts and draw us closer to you. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And I can speak your words in your ways for your glory, I ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, my Savior. Amen. But you may be seated. Now, by the time we get to where we are in Ezekiel 14, he has been a prophet for a few years. And while he hasn't always been appreciated... The people do recognize that he is a prophet of God. If you remember last week, one of the things that we mentioned was God told Ezekiel, you go. Now, they're going to reject you. They're not going to listen to you. But as you go and declare my word, they're going to know there has been a prophet among them. And that's what's happened. They had rejected. They had not appreciated. But they did recognize he was a prophet of God. And even though they were living in rebellion against God... In their minds, they never completely abandoned God. And that's kind of an important thing to see as you read through the Old Testament. Rarely in all of the Old Testament history do we find the Israelites just completely abandoning God. And typically what you find instead is that they mix God and something else. They try to worship Yahweh on the Sabbath day and Balak or Balaam or Moloch on another day. Right? I mean, that's just typically what they do. And that's kind of what's going on here. They're not where they ought to be. They're not even remotely living for the Lord. But in their minds, they're still servants of Most High God, at least a little bit. And so they recognize Ezekiel as a prophet. And in verse 1, they they go to him and they sit down before him. Now we see in verse 3 that they are coming to inquire of God for them. Right? In essence, what they're doing is... They're trying to pray. Perhaps they're in trouble in the nation and they want Ezekiel to pray that God would spare them. Perhaps they need guidance on what they ought to do and they want God to to give it to them. That's prayer. But notice what God says about this in verse 3. At the last. Should I let myself be inquired of them at all? Now clearly the implied answer is no. No. God is not going to listen to what they have to say. They're they're not going to go to God and ask for guidance while living in this rebellion against Him and expect that God would answer them or deliver them while they're living in this rebellion. And not only will God not be inquired of them, He actually says some pretty harsh statements regarding them. Look at the last of verse 4. He says, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude... Of his idols. Right? One of the translations I read said something along the lines that God will give them the answer that they deserve. Right? They've got all of this going on, all of this rebellion. They're going to to call on God. He'll answer them. Give them the answer they deserve. Now, I think what we're supposed to read out of that is it's not a good answer. Right? It's not answer of all is going to be well, you're blessed and highly favored. It's going to be a bad thing when God does. Now look at verse 7. Says he, what the reason we see he's going to respond to them in this way. Says, uh, for anyone 
of the house of Israel, of the strangers of Israel who dwell in Israel, who separate themselves from me and sets up idols in his heart, what caused him to stumble. But notice that they are, they are separating themselves from him, right? This is the reason God is going to respond the way he is. But it's not that they are seeking God, they're devoted to God, and God's just being petty, or God's being bitter. They have, by their actions, separated themselves from God. They are estranged from God, but it's them. They are the ones that have done it. And then look at verse 8. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb. I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Now, God says there he is against them. Now, the picture of God being against them there, it's not just that he's turned his face away and will not hear. We find that often in Psalms. But rather in this, it's more than that. Not only has he turned his face away that he will not hear, but he is actively working against them. Right? And almost you could say, and you see this like in, in Joshua. God had told them, I, if you don't fix this problem, I will become your enemy. And as you seek to destroy them, I'm going to work against you and I will destroy you. It's that same sort of a picture at this point. God is against them, going to work against them in their lives. And what this all means is their prayers were idle. They went nowhere and they accomplished nothing. Well, they accomplished nothing unless you consider angering God accomplishing something. So the question is why? Why were their prayers idle? And what does that teach us? And give us a warning about our lives. Idle hearts cause idle prayers. Idle hearts cause idle prayers. Right in verse 3. God says, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. He says in verse 7. Also, anyone who separates himself from me and sets up an idol in his heart. And that's important. I think it's interesting. Because in this, God does not accuse them of worshiping Baal or Moloch. Right? Those are the typical, the idols that, of the land, of the people of the land that they conquered, that, that stayed around and caused problems all throughout the Old Testament. Instead, in this case, they have set up idols in their hearts. Now, the picture from that partially is that there is no, there is no actual image. Right? They aren't bowing down before something that they have carved out to worship. Instead, it's something inside them that has become an idol. Now, what we often do, if we're not careful, is that we narrowly and wrongly limit idols to images that people bow down and worship. Now, for sure, that is a form of idolatry. But that is not the only kind of idols that we're warned about in Scripture. In reality, an idol can be anything other than Jesus that we give the place of preeminence in our lives. An idol can be anything we give greater devotion to than we give to Jesus. Right? If this thing other than Jesus drives my values, my priorities, my actions, my reactions, and my speech, that is an idol, no matter what it is. Someone has rightfully said that an idol is any idea, object, philosophy, habit, occupation, sport, loyalty, or person that lessens our loyalty to God. Someone else once said, 
Our God is the person we think most precious, for whom we would make the greatest sacrifice, and who moves our heart with the greatest love. He or it is the person who, if we lost Him, it would leave us desolate. As you can see, that offers quite a list of possibilities of what could be idols. So what are some things that could be idols in our heart? I think there's three primarily that most everything would fall into. One would be wrong ideas about God. By wrong ideas about God, I'm referring to basically rejecting what Scripture says about who God is and what God is like. And saying, I think this is what God, who God is. This is what God is like. It is pretty common in our day for people to have the idea that God can be whoever or whatever we want Him to be. I saw a headline today that demonstrates this. Some actress in some awards show, and I didn't read the whole article, I just saw the headline and read it a little bit. It said, she said, I don't believe in God, but I'm going to thank her tonight. Right? Just some mild blasphemy from Hollywood. Um, but that's a picture. God's whatever you want Him to be, or whatever you want her to be in this case. Now, that is an extreme example, and not likely one you'd find among professing believers. But it does show the, the reality of what goes on in our world. Less extreme examples, and ones you would likely find among professing believers, would be people who say things like, Well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in a God who... And then they finish that sentence by stating something that clearly contradicts Scripture. Right, so they might say something like, I believe in God, I just don't believe in a God who would say Jesus is the only way. Well, I believe in God, I just don't believe in a God who would allow someone to go to hell. Well, I believe in God, but I just don't believe in a God who would expect me to hold to an old, outdated idea of morality. Well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in a God who would expect me to do something that makes me uncomfortable. Well, I believe in a God, but I don't believe in a God who would expect me to love that kind of person. Or I believe in a God, but I don't believe in a God who would say that any kind of love could ever be wrong. Now, all of those are commonly heard things, not among the pagans of the land, but within those who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ. Now the obvious problem with all of these statements and this mindset is that God already has an established character and an established nature of who He is and what He's like that has been revealed in Scripture. And to me, I think all of this comes down to whether or not we believe that God is real. If God is imaginary, then we can absolutely... Create Him in whatever image makes us most comfortable. Because if there is no God, He can be anything I want Him to be. Or anything I want her to be. That's just, that's what that can be if there is no God. But if there is a God, then He is like something. And you don't get to choose what someone who's real is like. You either accept them as they are. Or you reject them. I mean, think about any person you know. 
You don't get to make up and pretend that your spouse fits some other ideal than what they're really like. Why? Because they're real people with real personalities, real identities. And what you do is you either accept them for who they are or you reject them. But you can't just make up something different and say, well, this is my spouse. This is my friend. This is my whoever. It's the same with God. We don't get to make up what God is like. We don't get to pick and choose the parts of Scripture and what it tells us what God is like that we want to keep and what we don't want to keep. God is real. Therefore, He has a character. He has a nature. He has an identity. He has a personality. And if we want to know God, love God, experience God, and serve God, we must accept God as He is and not try to alter it to fit anything else that we may have. Wrong, when we embrace wrong ideas about God, it causes our hearts to be idle. It causes our prayers to be idle because our hearts are filled with idolatry. Right? Not only wrong ideas about God, but wrong priorities in life. Wrong priorities in life. One of my heroes of faith, a fellow named R.A. Torrey, in his excellent book on prayer, said this about this particular passage and about idols in our heart. What is an idol? An idol is anything that is the supreme object of affection in our lives. God alone has the right to the supreme place in our hearts. Everything and everyone else must be subordinate to Him. Now we'd all agree with that, but here's where he gets hard. Many a man makes an idol of his wife. Not that a man can love his wife too much, but he can put her in the wrong place. He can put her before God. And when a man regards his wife's pleasure before God's pleasure, when he gives her the first place and God the second place, his wife is an idol. And God cannot hear his prayers. He goes on, many a woman... Makes an idol of her children. Not that we can love our children too much. The more dearly we love Christ, the more dearly we love our children. But we can put our children in the wrong place. We can put them before God and their interest before God's interest. And when we do this, our children become idols. He goes on to say, one great question for us to decide if we would have power in prayer. Is this, is God absolutely first? Is he before wife, before children, before reputation, before business, before our own lives? If not, prevailing prayer is impossible. It'd be easy enough for us to dismiss our rhetoric. He lived a hundred years ago. Just a guy, his opinion... Except for this from Jesus. So the multitude went with him and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life also, cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. 
Jesus absolutely expected to have that first place of devotion in our lives. Before wife, before husband, before children, before even our own lives and our own self-interest. I mean, remember His words to the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2 and 3. I know that you're suffering many things, He says, and it's about to get worse, but be ye faithful unto what did He say? Death. Faithfulness to me is more valuable than your own life. Those are the words of Jesus to a people who did die and suffer for His sake. Jesus absolutely demands and deserves first place in our hearts and in our lives. And if we are to have powerful prayer lives, then He must be. And when... We have wrong priorities in our lives. It causes our prayers to be idle because our hearts are filled with idolatry. And then a final one is wrong affections of the heart. Wrong ideas about God, wrong priorities of life, wrong affections of the heart. Now something we may not think of as being a part of an idol of the heart are the affections, the desires of our heart. And something I noticed yesterday in my reading, because this was actually part of my daily Bible reading yesterday. It's one reason we're doing it. It just caught my, my eye. But notice what he says in verse 3 and verse 7. Verse 3. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts, and notice this, and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. And he says the same thing in verse 7. They put before them something that causes them to stumble into iniquity. The picture this gives me is that they have a sin that they cherish in their hearts. Now they know that they shouldn't, but they do anyway. So kind of probably what they do is they, they, they vow that they won't do anything, that they won't take part in this, but what they do, rather than initially just say, whatever this sin is, I'm going to jump straight into it, they put something in front of them that will lead them to that sin. Right? It, it inspires, it stokes the fire of that temptation and of that desire. And they do it on purpose so that they know it will stoke that fire and lead them into sin. They know what's going to happen. It's like a comic I read once. The lady in the comic was trying to lose weight, but it was the day after Halloween when all the candy was on sale. To stay on her diet and to avoid the, the candy on sale, she had an internal conversation that went something like this. To keep from eating the candy, I won't even leave the house. Well, I'll leave the house, but I won't go by the grocery store. Well, I'll go by the grocery store, but I won't go in the grocery store. I'll go in the grocery store, but I won't go down the candy aisle. I'll go down the candy aisle, but I won't buy any candy. I'll buy some candy, but I'll put it up and I won't touch it. I'll touch it, but I won't smell it. I'll smell it, but I won't taste it. I'll taste it, but I won't eat it. I'll eat one pack, one piece and not the entire bag. Then the next frame has her sitting in a pile of candy wrappers and she said, I'll start my diet tomorrow. Now the question is, at what point, at what point did she blow her diet? 
Was it that last moment when she put the candy in her mouth? Or was it that instant when she went out of the house knowing where she was going? Right? All that she was doing was putting something before her that would lead her to the candy aisle. And that's a similar thing that, to me, captures the picture of what God is saying here. Putting something before us that leads us into sin. Scripture speaks to this mindset. The psalmist writes, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now the phrase, regard iniquity in my heart, is, is interesting. Because the Hebrew word for regard, it carries with it the idea of not just acknowledging and recognizing, but looking on with joy. That's why several translations actually render this, if I had cherished sin in my heart. Now, that's important, right? Because the psalmist doesn't say, if I committed sin, the Lord will not hear. But if I cherish it in my heart. So, even without the actions, that, that cherishing it is what? It is an idol in our hearts. It is something. You say, well, see, how could a sin be an idol? Do we know we shouldn't do it? Do we know we shouldn't cherish it? Do we know that God says no? Yes. Do we choose it anyway? Yes. So what are we doing? We are exalting that sin over God. In our lives. Therefore it becomes an idol. The great Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon said about this verse. If I regard iniquity in my heart. Having seen it to be there. I continue to gaze upon it without aversion. If I cherish it. If I have a side glance of love toward it. Excuse it. And minimize the severity of it. The Lord will not hear me. How can he? When you think about sin, causing your prayers to be idle, think mostly in terms of your attitude toward your sin. Now we all have sinful struggles in our lives. That's just a part of being human. And these struggles do not necessarily prevent us from having powerful prayer lives. The struggle itself is a sign of sanctification in our lives. right? Because without salvation, without the Spirit, without desire to be like Jesus, there is no struggle. We just do it. So the struggle itself, that's a good sign. That is sanctification. That's the Spirit at work in our lives. But our attitude toward the sin, that can hinder our prayers. Do we, do we justify the sin? I mean, everybody has to have one bad habit. Nobody's perfect, right? Right? Do we minimize the, the sinfulness or the severity of the sin? Well, it's not as bad as what other people are doing. Do we enjoy, cherish the sin? And that's a big thought. Of course, we there is pleasure in sin. We wouldn't do it if it wasn't enjoyable. So I'm not, but I'm not speaking of the act of sin. Do you cherish? Do you enjoy the thought of that sin? When you think about doing it, whatever it is, does it cause your, your face to flush with pleasure? Does it make you feel joy in your heart? Does it bring 
thrill to your soul just to think about it? Or do we hate not just the sin, but the very thought of that sin and its its place in our lives? Do we struggle against our sin? Do we seek and pray for victory over our sin? A lax attitude toward our sin makes our prayers idle. It hinders our prayer lives. Wrong affections of the heart lead to idle prayers because it is idolatry. And any of those things that we talk about, and I think most things would fall into these three categories. And anything that falls into those categories, anything that's there, it will cause our prayers to be idle. And what it does is it forces God to respond by refusing to be inquired of us. We saw that. Giving us the answer we deserve. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, that was a terrifying thought. One thing, I here's what I don't want from God. What I deserve. At no point in my life do I want what I deserve from God. I want mercy and grace always. What I deserve, no thank you, Lord. Can cause God to say that we are estranged, that we have separated ourselves from us, and God to even be against us. So if there are idols in our hearts, our prayers are idle, what do we do? How do we cure idle prayers? Repentance is the cure for idle prayers. In this passage, God tells us the reasons that idols of the heart cause Him to refuse to be inquired of us, to give us the answer we deserve, to say we are estranged from Him and to be against us. Now, look at verse 5. I love this. Again, this was something I don't guess that I had noticed before. That I may seize the house of Israel by their heart. Seize them by their heart. Now, the picture is God getting... A hold of us to turn us back to Him. And He doesn't do this to beat us into submission. Be sure, God does not want you to worship Him, to serve Him, so that He doesn't break your leg. He doesn't burn down your house or He doesn't punish you. That is how pagans worship their gods. We do not serve God as believers, as His children. I mean, think about that. With your kids, do you want your kids to do and spend time with you and talk to you and love you so that you don't beat them or ground them or punish them in some way? Don't you want them to want to be with you because they love you? I mean, don't you want your kids, when you say clean your room, to clean the room because they respect you? Not because they're afraid of what you're going to do to them if you don't do it. I don't want my kids to respond to me like that. Well, God doesn't want His kids to respond to Him like that either. When He does this, it is so that He can seize our heart. But keep in mind, God does know His own worthiness. God knows He's better than the idols of our hearts. He knows that He is better than any imagination about what we can come up with to what He's like. He knows that He is better than that. 
He knows that He is better than any of the wrong ideas we can have about Him. He is better than than anything. He knows that. And so, He will do what He has to do to seize our hearts. To turn us back to Him so that we can have the greatest good. Which is Him. I mean, that's why God does what He does. All He does, as we have idle prayers, is because, because of the idols in our hearts, is to seize us by the heart so that we will love Him and not be estranged from Him. He wants us to have the best thing ever, and that is Him. Now look at verse 8, particularly the last of verse 8. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. The wording is different, but it's the same principle. God opposes us when we have idols in our hearts because He knows that we are settling for less than what is actually best. He wants us to know He is the Lord. Listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. Lewis. I love this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We would settle for a God of our own making if it wasn't for God shaking us out of that. Uh, We would settle for the affection of sin and something along those lines if it was not for God shaking us and bringing us to Him to see that He is the greatest good. We would. We would have wrong priorities. And we would settle for giving a person or an action or a hobby our greatest sense of devotion. And we would miss out on the greatest good there is, and that is God. God will set His face against us with idols in our hearts till we come to the place where we know that He is God. He is God, and who He is is better than who we create Him to be. He is God, and He can satisfy us far better than anything or anyone else can, even family. He is God. And He is infinitely greater than any sinful pleasure we hold on to at the expense of our relationship with Him. So our response to what God does when our prayers are idle, verse 6, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent. Turn away from your idols. Turn your faces away from all your abominations. Repent. Turn away from that and turn to Me. Now, repentance is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. The key facet of repentance is change. It is a change of mind that results in a change of life. So in light of what we've talked about tonight, repentance looks like this. If we have embraced any wrong ideas about what God is like, we have to change our mind about them. Right? Our ideas are wrong. Scripture is right. So I'm going to drop my wrong ideas, and I'm going to embrace 
Scripture's real ideas about who God is and what God is like. If we have embraced wrong priorities in our life, we change our mind and we say God is worth infinitely more than whether it be family or job or promotion or pleasure. And so I'm going to change my priorities till God is the overarching driving priority in my life. If we have wrong affections in our heart, then we have to change our minds about them and say, I know these are wicked, sinful, horrible things. And I want God more than I want these things. The change aspect is extremely important as we must be seeking and doing all that we can to forsake these idols in our hearts. The psalmist or the proverb writer says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsake them will have mercy. A part of confessing and forsaking is being specific. Right? As we confess and forsake sin, we must call it by name. It's not enough to say, Lord, I confess I've sinned. You must name the sin. Lord, I confess I've minimized your holiness to excuse my sinfulness. Lord, I confess I've placed my spouse, children, job, hobby over you. Lord, I confess that I've cherished lust in my heart. Right? We must be as specific as possible as believers. Again, I think we understand this on a personal level, human level. Someone does something to harm your relationship. They're a friend. Do you want them to just come up and say, Hey, if I did anything that hurt your feelings, I'm real sorry about that. Is that okay with any of us? Think about just with your spouse. You have a big fight, a big blow up, and they come to you and go, Oh, if anything I said hurt your feelings, sorry about that. Does that make anything better? Does it restore the relationship in any way? Not really. What do we have to do? We have to be specific, don't we? Because we know what we said, we know what we did. I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I acted like that. I'm sorry I responded in that way. Again, if what we have with God is a relationship, it needs to be just that way. Confess it. Be specific. Now, when doing this, I also think it's important to verbally say you forsake it. Because the word forsake there, it is a, a strong word. And at least one translation renders it as renounce it. Right? Whoever confesses and renounces his sin will have mercy. Now, I'm not 100% sure that this teaches we must verbally say that we forsake or renounce the sin. But I'm going to say it has been helpful to me. It has been helpful to me to move beyond saying, God, I'm sorry for this sin. To saying, God, I forsake this sin. I renounce this sin. That there is, for me, there is something powerful about verbally renouncing 
the power of that sin in your life through the name of Jesus Christ. In Christ, I renounce this lust. In Christ, I renounce this idolatry. In Christ, I renounce, I forsake it. For me, again, something powerful about it. I don't think I can say you must do that. But when you read church history, you read down through the ages... Christians have often verbally renounced their sin in that way. We've kind of gotten away from that in our day, and I think we've missed out on something when we have. So let me close by asking, are your prayers idle because your heart is idolatrous? And if so, then know that God brought you here tonight so that you could see that He is God, so that He could seize your heart and bring you to repentance. Are you ready to repent? Are you ready to confess? Are you ready to forsake the idol of your heart? We're going to take just a minute tonight before we go on and have a time of prayer where we can examine our hearts to see if we have any idols that have set up shop there. Uh, Psalm 139 is a familiar psalm, but this is a different translation than you may have seen before. This is a great prayer to pray. God, I invite you, invite your searching gaze into my heart. Examine me through and through. Find out everything that may be hidden within me. Put me to the test and sift through all my anxious cares. See if there's any path of pain I'm walking on and lead me back to your glorious everlasting ways. The path that brings me to you. Let's take time right now and just have a moment of response. Close your eyes and bow your head. And if there is something in your life you need to forsake, You confess it, you forsake it. You pray that prayer and ask God to show you, then listen to what He has to say.